right, well, so good to be back with everybody. I hope you've had a great break and I uh, want to wish you a happy new year and uh, just say hello to everybody gathered across all of our locations and online. And uh, before we get going today, just something I want to make you aware of and to celebrate. Uh, we were able over the Christmas break to close on a facility on the northeast side of Indy that will be, Lord willing, the future home of our northeast campus uh, one day. So we're just super excited about that. And I want to celebrate it. Um, I want to ask you to be praying. Some of you may be aware of this. Some of you may not. Uh, we had launched our Northeast campus about um, two seconds before COVID. And then we had to make the painful decision to kind of uh, stop it. And now we're trying to restart it. And we've had just a number of obstacles and challenges along the way. But we believe that God desires for us to uh, start a location on the northeast side for all kinds of reasons. And so this is a huge milestone uh, for that uh, to happen. So I just want to ask you to be praying uh, about the, that campus as things begin to come together. But this is a big one that we want to celebrate. And I just want to thank you guys for just your ongoing generosity that makes things like that possible. When something pops up, we're able to pull the trigger on it. So, so thank you for that. And uh, man, if you're just now joining us, uh, you, maybe uh, you've been away from church for a while. You've come back to the beginning of the new year. We are kicking off just a three-week series of messages to begin this year called Letters from My Future Self. And really the idea behind this is that if you had the opportunity to go back in time or to maybe write a letter uh, to a version of yourself in the past, what would you say? Like what kind of encouragement, what kind of advice would you offer? What kind of warnings? You know, like maybe you would be like, oh, man, stay out of that relationship. I know he's cute. But stay out of that relationship. I know she's drop dead gorgeous, but she's trouble. You know, just, just avoid that, you know. Maybe you would be like, hey, don't get in the car. Don't get in the car. Man, that is going to change your life uh, forever. I don't know about you, but I, I wish that I could just go back in time and say, hey, Aaron, put two of your pennies together and invest in this stock uh, with the name of a fruit. Right? Just apple. Like, I'm not going to explain it. Just, just put it all in, like an, an apple. I, I, I wish that uh, I, I could offer myself some, some counsel in that area. Now, I've been thinking about this over, the uh, last several weeks and I thought you know what like what if I could go back in time uh, what were some things that I would kind of advise my, myself in the past? And I just came up with a few and, and uh, I'm going to actually probably share uh, maybe a few of these every week of this series. But, but here's one I would most definitely say to my younger self. Uh, Dear Aaron, one afternoon in the fifth grade, you're going to get so excited about the extra 10 minutes of recess that you receive that you will run outside Pick up a rock and without thinking, throw it straight up into the air. Please do not do this. As it will land on top of your friend's head, splitting it wide open. Now he would eventually be okay. But you will spend the rest of that recess and every other recess that week in detention. And actually, he will never let you forget it. All right, so, so Aaron, don't do that. Here, here's the, the next one. I'm just going to get real vulnerable with you. Like that's just the kind of church we are. All right, dear Aaron. You are going to eat way too many hot dogs and s'mores at the 4th of July celebration when you are in the 7th grade. The next morning, you will get up early to go play golf with your dad, your uncle, and your cousin. Please bring a change of underwear. <laughs> and, and shorts. All right, that's how bad it was. To the golf course. Trust me, you will need them. <laughs> Every swing, man, I caught a whip. It was bad, it was bad. All right, that's it, that's it. All right, that's it, that's it. No, we don't say anything more, all right? Here's, here's another one I'll give you a little more, more serious, all right? Uh, dear Aaron, when you are in your mid-20s, you are going to put an inordinate amount of pressure on yourself to be, or at least appear to be, successful. Failure is your greatest fear. Um, still is, by the way. Please don't overthink it. God is at work in your life, and your greatest accomplishments are not necessarily what you do, but who you serve. Be faithful, work hard, laugh often, invest in your marriage, your kids, your friendships. Stay close to Jesus. Leave the results to him. Don't forget to have fun doing what you're doing because it is going to go by much faster than you think. You know, if you had the opportunity to sit down, just pin a letter to yourself in the past, what would you say? What kind of advice and counsel would you give? What about this? What are some of the things that God has been teaching you in your faith journey with him that you would like to share with your past self? What are some things that you've learned in his word that you would just like to pass on? Maybe it'd save you some heartache. Now let's take that and flip it. What if tomorrow you got a strangely marked letter in the mail and the handwriting looked really familiar and it was from you, your future self advising you on some things about your current life? What would you say to yourself? So 
Um, these next three weeks together are really like a deeply personal series for me because really what I did to kind of lay out this series was just to say, what are three things I think my future self would say to me now? And that's the series. So next week, we're going to talk about uh, just financial peace and stewardship and decisions, just the anxiety that I've experienced around finances. And what does the Bible have to say about that? And we're going to talk about um, forgiveness, uh, forgiving other people, maybe even when they don't deserve it or ask for it or are no longer around, not necessarily to relieve their conscience, but to release you from the bitterness of your own heart. Today, what we're going to start with is I, I think that if I were to write myself a letter, forget a letter from my future self, it would just simply say, dear Aaron, don't overthink it. You are in your head way too much. And I'm guessing that I'm not alone when I, when I say that. I, I am often guilty of overthinking things, taking myself too seriously, letting criticism get too much of me. I uh, catastrophize worst case scenarios. I'm, I'm afraid at times of messing up or missing out. And as we begin a brand new year, I think this is just a good time for all of us to be reminded that the battle is won or lost largely in our minds. There is a huge battle taking place right now in the minds of men, women, and children everywhere. And you know this to be true. And I know this to be true. And, and right now, I think there's a number of factors around this. I mean, obviously, we've just come through a massive global crisis that comes around about every century or so. That's part of it. Uh, but that's not all of it. I think it just revealed maybe some of the, the challenges with mental health that many of us have been experiencing. I think another factor is that um, we have access to more information at our fingertips than any other generation in the history of the world, like that's astounding. And we don't have processors fast enough to process all the information that's coming in. And so at some point, we, we just feel overwhelmed. So for example, like if this uh, stick figure right here kind of represents you and the sphere around it represents your world, like right now here in 2023, chances are there's a number of stressors or factors that you're wrestling with in your life. And maybe you would put some of those under uh, just the word troubles. And maybe you've experienced a loss of some kind or just unexpected circumstances or the next global crisis. Maybe it's a transition of some kind. Maybe you've just recently moved or you've gone through some sort of career change or just added stress in your life. Uh, then there's just ongoing trials. Maybe there's a trial right now with your health and the doctors don't quite fully know what's wrong and you're not sleeping very well. And maybe the trials that are going on with the economy, maybe your personal finances. And then one last one maybe would just be tension. You know, maybe there's tension right now in your marriage, uh, some key relationships. There's an interpersonal conflict going on. Just this whole thing right here, all of us have a number of stressors going on in our worlds. You add on to the fact that um, we are forced to make all kinds of decisions every day, whether we want to or not. Statistically, the average person makes between 60 and 70,000 decisions per day. And when I say decisions, I mean like, okay, when am I going to wake up? And what am I going to eat for breakfast? Will I eat breakfast? What am I going to wear? What route am I going to take to work? What meeting am I going to have? Like all these decisions add up 60 to 70,000 a day. We've got all these stress factors. We've got crisis we're dealing with. We've got um, issues that we're dealing with in our relationships. And after a while, I think we get to this place where we just overload the system. And maybe right now, you're overthinking things. Your mind is constantly running. You can't quite ever shut it off. You're, you're not sleeping very well. It's affected your appetite. It's affecting your relationships and your overall health. And we can get to this place where eventually we find ourselves numbing out because we just don't want to think anymore. So, and you can use anything, any even good thing to numb out. You just sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix or maybe you are watching the game or whatever it is. You're, you're using things to numb out because you're tired of thinking and feeling. Or maybe we check out or we end up burning out. Now this is all very, very real. And I want to say, I want to kind of preface all of this by just saying that I am not a physician. I'm a pastor. So I want to stay in my lane. 
But I do think that there's some overlap. I do think that there's some crossover. I do think we need both. I think we need physicians. I think we need pastoral guidance and help. And really primarily is, does the Bible say anything about this? And it turns out that the Bible has a lot to say about it. And I want to turn your attention to a passage in the Old Testament called 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible, whether it's digital or paper, go ahead and turn there to 1 Kings chapter 19. And I want to walk through part of the story of a guy by the name of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet. And I, I used to think, growing up in church, and maybe some of you are like me, like I used to think that if your name and story was found in the Bible, then that meant that you had it all together. And then I read my Bible and I realized that is not the case. And in fact, it's actually quite refreshing that um, the men and the women that are listed in the Bible, even the ones in which God did really powerful things through them, oftentimes, especially them, uh, they were regular human beings like you and me and they struggled and they had sin temptations and they messed up. And, and even they wrestled with anxiety, worry and depression and that would be the case for Elijah. In fact, Elijah even had thoughts, we'll see it in the text, um, of the possibility of ending his own life. Now to set all this up in uh, chapter 18, I don't have time to read all of chapter 18. In fact, I would encourage you sometime to go back maybe later today and read chapter 18 on your own. Because it is just this epic showdown between God and um, the false god Baal who was a pretty prominent false god at the time. And there was this famine in the land, no rain, people were uh, struggling. And so uh, Elijah gets together with 450 prophets of the false god Baal. So you got one against 450. And Elijah goes toe to toe with these guys. And they basically say, okay, here's what we're gonna do to kind of determine which God has the most power. You guys create an altar and uh, then we will pray and see which God sets the altar on fire. You go first. And so these false God, these uh, prophets, they start praying to Baal and nothing happens. And I love it. Just go back and read it sometime because Elijah is the best trash talker in the world, right? He's just like trash talking. My favorite is when he's like, hey, uh, pray louder, pray louder. Maybe he's relieving himself and he just doesn't hear you. I mean, it's just, it's such great. All right, so, so uh, then, uh, you know, Elijah prays, bam, you know, God ignites the altar. It's just this incredible victory. And then we see right after that in chapter 19, this is when Elijah faces a significant bout with anxiety, depression, and potentially even the thoughts of suicide. And honestly, can I just say that, that that's oftentimes how it works. And you just need to be aware of it. That whenever you experience some sort of what we might call, uh, you call it what you want, like, a good day or a victory or a spiritual mountaintop experience, whatever it may be, when your adrenaline's pumping, the endorphins are rushing, and then you're coming down from that, both emotionally and spiritually, for whatever reason, oftentimes that is when you and I are the most vulnerable to spiritual and emotional attack. That's when you're the most, like when you're stressed and tired and coming down off of that, that's when you are the most vulnerable to temptation. That's when you are uh, the most vulnerable to thoughts of anxiety and depression. Why it works that way, I don't fully know. I just know that um, that's how it works, both as I've observed it in the lives of others, as I see it in God's word, and as I've experienced it in my own life. And I've shared this with you guys before that um, kind of the rhythm of my week, I've just got to this place where I've anticipated it, that the two lowest times of my regular work week, uh, spiritually and emotionally, are Sunday afternoons and all day Tuesday. Now that's just for me. And I think part of the reason why is because it takes so much for me to kind of yeah, kind of get ready for this moment that I'm doing right now. Like sermon preparation for me is all week long. I'm just putting the logs together on a fire and then I hope that God ignites it, you know, and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, you know, and, uh, and, and then I, I, you know, it could be an incredible weekend. You know, I could feel good about the sermon. We could have all kinds of baptisms, praying with all kinds of people, meeting all kinds of needs and still. I'll go home 
and I just feel like it's just the, it's just the letdown off of all that. And I start to second guess myself and I start to struggle and I feel alone. And it's just, I've just learned that all day Tuesday, because that's sermon writing day. And I just feel, I feel the, you can ask my wife, like uh, she'll, I'll come home and she'll be like, hey, how's today? I was like, it was Tuesday. You know, and I just feel that just kind of attack. Now, I don't say that to draw attention to me. I say that to say, I know the struggle. Now you contextualize it for you. When, when is it for you? And for Elijah, he has this incredible spiritual victory where he goes toe to toe with 450 false prophets. God comes through for him. And right after that, he experiences this bout with anxiety and depression. And part of what triggered it was Queen Jezebel, here's what happens. She's so angry that she says, I want Elijah dead within 24 hours. And listen to how he responds in verses three through five. You know, you thought you were having a bad day, right? Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. Now notice this, he left his servant there. No explanation. No, why did he do that? We don't really know. But hold on to that. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 4. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. Now here's what he was thinking. I've had enough, Lord. Any of you felt that way? I've just had enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. And then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. I just love how real this is. Because we've all been there to various degrees and various times. The irony is that Elijah has just squared off with some very intimidating people. And he has had an incredible amount of courage and faith. And, and God came through for him. And yet now in this instant, he doesn't have the courage. He, he doesn't have the faith. In fact, he's afraid and, and he runs and he isolates himself. He withdraws. And I just want you to know that there's going to be times when you will face challenges with incredible courage and faith. And maybe in the next moment, you're going to wonder where that courage and faith went. And your circumstances are going to overwhelm you. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. It just simply means you're a human being in a broken world with very real emotions. And it also points out here that he was alone. And you wouldn't think that would be the case. I mean, after all, he's just come through this incredible victory. You would think he would have crowds of people that would want to travel with him and be associated with him. And I think that probably there was a crowd of people that wanted to be associated with him. But I think that Elijah withdrew. I mean, part of the reason why I say that is because he left his servant behind. We don't really know the details around all of that. But, but I do know, speaking from personal experience, that when you begin to struggle emotionally and spiritually, one of the natural reactions that we all have is to just sort of pull back, is to just begin to kind of withdraw and to isolate. I've talked to a, a number of people even here recently that have said, you know, for, for whatever reason, like when I begin to struggle with anxiety and depression, one of the first things that, that I do, and I don't really know why I do this, is that I just stop attending church. I, I just stop watching. I just like withdraw. I just, I end up pulling back. And I don't know the reasons for all that. I'm not even going to presume that upon you. But I, I do know that one of the ways in which the enemy likes to get us in checkmate is his first move is isolation. We see that two of the biggest moments of Jesus' struggle in his life was when he was isolated. Like whenever he began his earthly ministry, he was led out into the desert and he was alone where he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy. And the night before his crucifixion, he was with his disciples. They were there, but they were checked out. They kept falling asleep and even Jesus needed community. He kept saying to the guys, he's like, guys, could you stay awake with me and pray? And they kept falling asleep on him. And so I just want to encourage you right now that when you find that maybe the dark clouds of depression, maybe anxiety, maybe you're overthinking things, I know that maybe a very natural reaction is to step back into withdrawal. And I get that. I want to encourage you to step back in. Um, I, I'm not down on online ministry. Uh, you know, online has been the front door to our church for a long time. There's a fluidity between physical and digital nowadays. We have people that join us 
really, it's wild, like all over the, the world online. I know there's a number of people that can't show up physically. I know that maybe you may be traveling. You can join us digitally. I think all that's great. Here, here's my caution and concern that I'll just offer pastorally. Um, don't just stay online so that you can stay isolated and just watch by yourself. Like if you're going to be online, do it in community. I ran a great example of this. I just heard this this last week. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, a community um, east of here uh, called Spiceland. You can look it up. It's almost uh, towards the Ohio border. And there's just a handful of people that have gotten together at a coffee house. Somebody's opened up their coffee house. They watch us online. They were watching at the 9 o'clock. They were watching online. They invited three families uh, today, and they all showed up. And I love that. They're, they're, all, they're not just watching alone from their bedroom or their living room. They're gathering together in some sort of a community. And I want to encourage you to do the same. Don't stay alone. That's when we are the most vulnerable. And look on at what it says in verse 5. It says, uh, so Elijah fell asleep. We, we left him there. It says, as he was sleeping, an angel did what? Touched him. And I want you to hold on to that because that's really important. The angel touched him. That was the first thing that he did. And then told him. Now, what he says here is really, really important for us to understand. Because he could have said a bunch of things. But the angel said, get up and eat. Those are some of my favorite words. So you've heard me say this before that like, you know, the top three things that as human beings we need to hear is I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready, right? I mean, those, those, those are the things we want to hear. And so the angel says to him, get up and eat. And so he looks around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones. Man, there's nothing better than homemade bread and a jar of water. Now what I want to point out to you is that his thoughts were so depleting that he was sleeping the day away. And his routine was interrupted and he wasn't functioning properly. And the angel comes and touches him. And I don't think the angel was just waking him up. I think there was something more to that. I'll get to that in just a minute. And the angel, of all the things the angel could have said, the angel could have spiritualized things. The angel could have shamed him. The angel could have said, what are you doing, man? You're sleeping the day away. Like, you, you know, you're one of these epic prophets. Get up and do your job. You know, just, just pray more or confess your sin. Like he doesn't say any of that. What does the angel say? Get up and eat. Get up and eat. In fact, he, he addresses an emotional problem via a physical need. And so then in verse 6, Elijah gets up, he ate, and he drank. And this shows how deep his anxiety was. <laughs> he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and once again touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. I just take this to, to mean here that Elijah, like he just didn't want to face the day. He just thought, you know what, it would just be a lot easier if I could just go back to, to bed. And I know what that's like. Maybe you know what that's like. There have been two specific seasons of my life that lasted roughly six to nine months, both seasons I was in them, in which uh, uh, it was horrible. Like I would wake up in the morning and the very first thought that I would have is I don't want to face the day. I really don't want to get up. I, it would just be much better if I could just stay here all day. And maybe some of you know exactly what that feels like. Maybe you're there right now. And what I want you to see is that God cared enough here to send an angel. It doesn't necessarily identify who the angel was. It just says angel of the Lord. And, and I, I love that. I don't want to read too much into the passage here. But I, I, I will say another way of saying this is that this angel was an agent of encouragement and hope. And here's what I know. I know you need that today. And I know that the person sitting next to you, behind you, and in front of you needs that today. You know, I've been reading all the statistics as a pastor. You know, I've been looking at um, the decline of the church in the Western world. It's been happening now for a number of years, even before COVID. COVID just accelerated it. And uh, the church is just kind of continuing to decline in influence in the West. And as a pastor, one of the things I've been praying is, God, in the remainder of my days, how do I reverse that trend? Not, not that it's all up to me. I'm just saying, how do we turn this thing around and reach more people? And I think that there's a lot of things we could do. I think this is one of them. That we would take it very, very seriously that the local church, that we would be agents of encouragement and hope. Because where else are you finding that today? 
Like right now we are tearing each other apart as a society because of our own pain. Like when you see somebody lash out, when you see the division, when you see all the criticism, that has very little to do with other people's behaviors, has everything to do with the personal unprocessed pain that we're all feeling. And so we point fingers of blame and we divide. And right now more than ever, God is, is calling men and women to step up as ambassadors for Christ and be agents of encouragement and hope. There is not anybody that you will cross paths with today or this week that doesn't have something going on in your life, in their life. So that ought to make you more gracious towards them. Have you ever just been out on the road? And man, I, I pray now more than ever uh, because, you know, I've got, I've got two teenagers that are driving and another one on the way. And uh, man, I'm, my prayer life is just whoop. Like way up, right? When they're praying. And I see somebody have just this out of control road rage and they just lay into somebody. And I, I feel it all the more now, now that I've got teenagers on the road. But I've always thought to myself, I'm like, whenever I see that, I'm always like, man, do you have any idea who that person is? Do you have any idea what they may be driving away from? Like maybe they're driving away from the hospital and they just lost somebody. And now you're going to yell at them and curse them out for maybe something, some honest mistake. You, here, here, I say all that to say this. You don't know what other people are going through. So be kind. Be gracious. Be agents of encouragement and hope. And that's what the angel of the Lord was doing for Elijah, that's what God is encouraging us to do as well. The other thing that I want you to see here is that the angel kept touching Elijah and encouraging Elijah to meet a physical need. Now, now here's why I think that is so true. It is so crucially important when it comes to like our thought life and our mental health that we understand. I think we all know this. We just need to be reminded of it. We are an integrated system. So what that means is you can't separate the mental, the physical, the spiritual, and your emotional health because they are all interconnected. So when one is offline or not running properly, it will affect the others. So physically, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not sleeping well, not eating right, not exercising, that's going to affect you spiritually and emotionally. Same thing. Like emotionally, you're struggling, that's going to affect you physically. It's this integrated System And this is so relevant to the date uh, I'm preaching this message. If any of you are watching this in the future on YouTube, uh, we are right now uh, in the middle of January in Indiana. What that means, we haven't seen the sun in a long time. All right. And, uh, and, and that means we, we know we need sunlight for our emotional and even physical health. And so we've, we've got to recognize that that is an aspect uh, of, our, of our health. So um, many of you maybe have uh, these, but uh, Lindsay and I have what's uh, called like a happy light. It's like this iPad looking thing. And all it does is just generate like this like light. And so we've got it on our kitchen counter uh, near where we have our coffee every morning. And uh, we just get up before the sun comes up, if we ever even see the sun. And we'll turn that thing on and we'll have for 10, 15 minutes, just kind of look into it as we're drinking our, our coffee because we know that we are an integrated system. You can't neglect one of these uh, for the other. We know, and I'm not gonna do a deep dive on this because as I said, I'm not a physician, I'm a pastor, but you all know this, you can Google it, right? There are these chemicals that we all need called neurotransmitters because they come through the nerves into your brain that actually affect mental health. And so one of those would be uh, dopamine. Like we need dopamine. Dopamine gets triggered when we accomplish something just to keep it super, super simple. Another is serotonin that comes through healthy food. Uh, another would be oxytocin, human connection. Hold that right there. I think this is part of the reason why it stresses in the text, the angel kept touching Elijah. He knew he needed this. Like, they, hey, I, I, I'm gonna, I, I, yeah, there are studies to show, show, like one of the reasons why we love dogs so much, they'll just let us pet them all day long. Like we, we're, just, we're just looking for the cats, not so much, right? It's like, they, it's on their terms. It's on their terms, right? So, and then the last one is endorphin, right? And th this, gets, this gets released like through exercise. So exercise isn't just vanity. Like you're not just trying to get six pack abs. It, you're, you're, you're actually doing this to release a chemical that your brain needs. Now, there are other transmitters that, that uh, will release chemicals that still serve a purpose, but if they're released at the wrong time of the day or in too much doses, or if they never shut off, will affect your mental health. One of those uh, just being cortisol and stress causes cortisol just to be poured in. And when you have too much of it, it will affect your mental health. So to start healing, 
and to start to begin to recover. We can't just put it all in the spiritual category and spiritualize everything. And we can't just put it all in the physician category and all the, you know, the biology of it. They're integrated and they will affect one another. And so we've got to pay attention to the chemicals that, so, so I would simply say this, you're really, really wrestling with anxiety, mental health, aside from maybe you do need to pursue a physician or a therapist or medication of some kind. No shame in any of that. But I'd also ask some other questions. Are you in community? Are you getting enough touch? Are you sleeping? Are you eating right? Are you exercising? Because it is an integrated system. Here's the other thing that I would say. It might surprise you to hear that um, not all worry is bad. In fact, I think we're used to hearing that worry is bad. You know, we say, hey, don't worry about it. But God actually designed worry as part of your central nervous system to protect you. So whenever there's something that's kind of dangerous uh, that's in front of you, you perceive that, sends a message to your brain, you need to do something about it. Like you need to, to navigate around it. You need to take some sort of an action to preserve yourself. So worry is not the problem. Worry is a gift. Here's the problem. When your amygdala gets stuck and goes unchecked like a wide open accelerator. And instead of redirecting the worry, instead of resolving the worry, doing something about it, we sort of get stuck on it. And kind of like a washing machine, we just churn on it like over and over and over again. Now here's what happens because of like neuroplasticity is that your neurological pathways end up getting reshaped through all of those thought processes. And then it, that has the potential to become crippling or even chronic anxiety. So I want you to think about it this way, that worry primarily takes place in your brain. Anxiety gets felt in your body. Uh, worry is something that is very specific. It's tangible. Like you can do something with it. You can make a decision. Uh, anxiety is very, very vague. And you're not quite sure what to do with it. So an example of this would be, let's just say you're on your way to the airport and uh, you've got a flight to catch and you get stuck in traffic and a worry pops into your mind. I might miss the flight. And so uh, that's very understandable. And so, but you can do something about it. You can take a different route. You can call the airline. You can rebook your flight unless it's Southwest. Um, I, 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 I didn't do that first hour. I thought it might be too soon. But I had a number of you come up to me and say, no, no, go ahead and use it. Right? Go ahead and use it. And that, all right, so, all right. So uh, you can do something about it, all right? And then, uh, but, but uh, with anxiety is when you get to the airport, you get on the plane, the plane's taken off, but you still feel anxious. And you don't know why. You're like, I don't know, I don't know man, something bad might happen. You know, I, I, maybe, maybe we'll still be late. And you just can't shut your mind off. Or uh, maybe it's like, I've got a legitimate worry. Like I've got to make a mortgage payment on the 15th of the month. And so let's not miss it. Let's set a, you know, a reminder, whatever. Hey, legitimate. But let's just say you make the payment. 15th comes and goes. You're still thinking about it. And it's very, very vague. You're like, well, you know, what if, uh, you know, did I shut the oven off? And is there black mold growing behind the walls? And there's all these things that you're just continuing to, to churn and churn and churn and churn. But you can't really do anything about it. So anxiety is sort of like wrestling or sparring with a ghost. You can never land a punch because it's so vague. Let me say it this way. Anxiety is unchecked worry that makes its way from your head to your heart and you're not really sure what you can do about it. So is there anything we can do? Well, first of all, let me just say very practically, you might uh, need to consult a physician, therapist, medication of some kind as a tool to help with the healing of your mind. There's no shame in it. Number two, you might wrestle with this on some level Maybe even through different seasons, different intensities for the rest of your life. Why? Because you're an uh, imperfect human being living in a fallen world. And I just want to say that it is totally okay. And I know that maybe you were in a church setting or maybe around Christians that said things. And maybe they meant well, but it didn't help. And they said things, you know, whenever you told them that you were anxious or struggling with your mental health, you know, they, they sort of dismissed it. They didn't know what to say. Uh, or they, they didn't identify, they didn't have any empathy. Or maybe they said, well, you know, you know how's your prayer life? And, you know, are, are, you, doing, are you reading your Bible every day? And, and uh, you know, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? 
And I just want to say that I'm not saying that they're entirely wrong. I'm just saying that is pretty poorly misplaced and it's not very emotionally intelligent. Can I say to, to, to you today, some of you, somebody needs to hear this. God does not punish you for sin by sending anxiety into your life. Theologically, it's just not sound. And here's why I can say that is because when Jesus went to a cross and you have trusted him as Lord and Savior of your life, here's what happened, is that Jesus took all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, and he nailed it there. And he absorbed it into himself and he paid the price for your sin. And God does not punish the same sin twice. Jesus paid it for you. Now, with that said, now, that doesn't mean that there's not consequences to certain decisions that we make. It doesn't mean there's not consequences to sin. It just means that God isn't up there going, well, you know, you, you've not confessed some sin to me, so I'm going to, there's some anxiety. You know, he, did, he doesn't do that, right? So, so please understand uh, that. And, um, and with that said, let me just say this. There is a way, there is a way to experience peace in the midst of anxiety, even if it is an ongoing struggle. And it's through this process of healing. And so I just real briefly, as I close up, I wanna just close out with some encouragement that a guy named Paul writes in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter four, verse six. Here's what he writes. He says, don't worry about anything. Hey, stay with me. Some of you just tuned me out. Because that verse, unfortunately, has maybe been used and misused and mistaught and misapplied. And so you've had maybe a well-meaning Christian use this verse to kind of shame you in some way. So, so hang with me, what he says and what he doesn't say. He goes, don't worry about anything. Here's a key word, instead. This, this, is, this, is what you, this is another word for redirect, pray about everything. So you might read this and go, man, that's impossible. I, I, I can't not worry about something. Well, he doesn't say never worry. He says, don't, meaning don't stay there. Like don't dwell on it. Do something about it. So here's what this means practically. So when worries come into your mind via the amygdala, remember God created you that way to preserve your life, keep you from danger. Totally okay. But then we've got a decision to make. Okay, is there something I can do about it? Then I'm going to do something about it. If I can't do anything about it, okay, uh, where do I need to redirect this thing? And so I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to worry and allow this to affect me mentally. That's such an important distinction to make. See, here's what worry is. Worry is you talking to yourself about your problems. So, so here's what here I want. It, worry is inverted prayer. That instead of going to God, it just terminates on you. Um, uh, you. You could think about it this way. That when you worry, that is a cue to pray. So you're like, okay, man, if this is staying with me, then I need to, to redirect it. That's exactly what he said in the passage. And so when I just worry and I stay there, that is me rehearsing worst case scenarios in my mind. And that has never done me any good. Has it ever done you any good? It is you spending enormous amounts of emotional energy on things that may never happen. It is a down payment on a problem you may never have. Somebody once described it this way. Worry is an internal false prophet of doom that prophesies a hopeless future. Sounds awful. Why do we do it? Well, I can't presume as to why you do it. I know why I do it. I do it as a form of control. That when things feel out of control, I think, well, I'm just going to worry this thing into the ground. Now check out verse six and seven. He says this, instead, here's what you do. This next sentence is so powerful. Tell God what you need. And I would add, go big, right? Like go big, like, like God wants you to pray bold prayers. Like God wants, like I know we, we've been taught like, hey, don't be selfish and don't be selfish, but it, that doesn't mean you can't go big. Like tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. I don't know about you, I often forget that last part, especially when I'm in need. And then here's the result. He says, then you will, say the word out loud with me, experience, all right, this is something you experience, God's peace. He says nothing about resolving your issues. He says nothing about the circumstances will get better. You know, and none of this like, hey, if God, you know, shuts the door, he opens the window. Like it doesn't, doesn't say any of that. He says, you'll experience his peace which exceeds 
anything you can understand. In other words, I can't put an equation around it. I can't necessarily explain it, but I'm experiencing it. And there's so much packed into these three sentences that's so refreshing if you really stop to listen. And here's what it is. Here's what God desires from us when we find ourselves in the pit of anxiety. God says, hey, the way to healing is relational. It is not transactional. And I don't know about you, but I so often want a transactional God. I just want to say, God, this is what I need. Do it. And if God doesn't do it, then I question his existence or his goodness. And God desires a relationship, and that's how relationships work. Tell God what you need. Thank you for what he's done. I don't know about you. I used to think that life was either a series of ups or downs. You were either one or the other. I used to think that your day was either good or bad. I used to think that it was either blessings or curses. But I'm learning that it isn't that cut and dry. That life, instead of a series of mountaintops and valleys, is actually more like a series of railroad tracks. And right now, if you and I were to sit down over a cup of coffee, I could share with you that right now in my life, like right now, there are some tremendous blessings, things that I'm so grateful for that I honestly don't deserve. And I would also be able to share with you the other side of the tracks, some things that are going on right now that I'm burdened by, I'm wounded by, I'm struggling with. They go side by side. Paul knew that as he wrote these words. And he said, what this means is that every single one of us can right now tell God what we need and we can thank him for all that he has done. And here's the promise that he gives in verse seven. His peace will what? Guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And then I just want to finish up the passage. He says in verses eight and nine, and now... Dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts. That's another way of saying, think about what you think about. On what? And he gives eight things. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Here's the promise, last sentence. Then the God of peace. Doesn't say we'll deliver you. Doesn't say we'll fix all your problems. He says he will be with you. This is so practical and honestly encouraging if you hear it and you receive it. He's basically saying, fix your thoughts. Meaning like you can't control what pops into your mind. You can control if you allow it to make a mess and stay there. So he says, redirect it, clean up the mess, move on, right? Now, I know you can do this. And the reason why I can say that so confidently is if you have ever potty trained a toddler or housebroken a puppy, you can do this. Same thing, same concept. It's like a thought comes into your mind, makes a mess. Okay, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna allow it to stay there and stink? Am I gonna clean it up? Am I gonna send it on? And then he says, here's how you do this. It's just this eight question test right here. He's like, is it true? Is it honorable? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it admirable? Is it excellent? Is it worthy of praise? I mean, this pretty much like eliminates like 90% of the internet. <laughs> and it's this idea of paying attention what you expose yourself to and what you allow into your head. If you've been in our church for any number of years at all, you've, you've heard me say this, that the number one command in scripture is simply two words, fear not. Number one command in scripture is not pray more. It's not give more. It's not serve more. It's fear not. And that's true. Like it's mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible because God knew we would need to hear that. Not just in this generation, but in every generation. We oftentimes overlook what comes after that a lot of the time. Is that it says, fear not, for I am with you. And what God promises is not necessarily an immediate change of your circumstances. That can happen, may not happen. He's saying, I'm, I promise you something better than that. I'm promising you something joy, which actually supersedes your circumstances. And he says, I desire to come near and to be with you in the midst of your fear. It's his presence that you need first and foremost. Um, 
our kids are getting a little bit older now, but when they were younger, um, we took them to Disney on a handful of occasions. And my oldest daughter, Campbell, she's 18 now, but when she was maybe six or seven, she wanted to ride the Haunted Mansion. And I kind of warned her, I was like, honey, I don't know if you're ready for that. And, but she kind of likes that kind of stuff. And she was totally confident. She's like, no, dad, I want to do it. And none of the other kids wanted to do it. And so I was like, all right, I'll take you. And so we get in line and I'm watching this. I'm watching her whole body language change because as she's standing in line, she starts to observe things. And I can see she starts to ruminate out loud. And so she starts to make these statements to me, but they really weren't to me. She was saying them to herself. Like she looked at the cemetery off to the side and she's like, that's not real. I know it's not real. And I can see her start to get a little nervous and she's listening to the creepy music and she hears, you know, something go on inside the house. She kind of jumps a little bit and she's like, oh, you know, that, that's all fake. That's just for show, you know. And I, kept, I was like, hey, honey, like, are you sure you want to do this? And she's like, no, no, I want, I want to do it. I want to do it. But she kept ruminating, talking out loud, talking herself into it all the way up to where we got into the ride. We sit down, we lock in. As soon as the thing starts to go, she like loses it. And she's like, daddy, I don't want to do this. And at that point, like there was nothing I could do. And she kind of buried her head into my shoulder and she just started crying. And, you know, I'm trying to comfort her through the whole ride. And and uh, I'm thinking, man, you know, what kind of therapy is she going to need in the future, you know? And, and I'm just like, oh, gosh, you know. And so we kind of get through the whole thing and, and uh, we get out. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's over. She's going to calm down. But she didn't. Like it just escalated. It, it got worse. And so we walk out of the ride. We walk out to the little, you know, sidewalk area in front of the ride. There at Disney is crowded. You know, people are walking all around. And, and she's trembling and she's crying, like to the point that she really like can't even walk. She's just like, she's not even making sense. There's these big sobs. And I couldn't calm her down. And so I did all that I could do in that moment. I just remember I bent down, I picked her up and I wrapped my arms around her. And I just started rocking her side to side as she cried in my shoulder. And I just said these words over and over again. I just said, I'm right here. I'm right here. And, you know, I, I know this might sound a little sick and twisted, but we've taken our kids to Disney a bunch of times. That's my favorite memory at Disney. And it's not because my little girl was in pain. It's because it was an opportunity for me to draw near. You have a heavenly father that, that does not relish the emotional pain that some of you are experiencing right now. What he does desire is to draw near. The question is, will you let him? Don't withdraw, don't pull back, but step forward into his promise that he has given. And so today that's what we're gonna do as we just wrap up this message, but the first message of a new series in a new year, just with communion together at all of our locations. So I hope you grabbed communion on your way in. Those of you that are followers of Christ, I just invite you to this. If you're not, that is totally okay. I want you to be able to do some reflection on the message and to pray this same prayer. But here's what I wanna ask you to do. If uh, you could not uh, uh, open up the communion just yet, I wanna give you some instruction. Here's what I wanna ask you to do. I wanna ask you to spend just a moment or two with communion in your hand. And I want you to pray this prayer. God, here's what I need. And I want you to go big. God, like right now, like I need you to save my marriage. There's no practical reason why it could be or should be saved. I don't even deserve for it to be saved, but God, would you save it? God, um, I need you to heal me from this thing, whether it's physical or emotional. God, I need a job. Like I want you to go big. I want you to get selfish. Tell God what you need. You can pray a bold prayer. He can handle it. He's asked you to do it. But here's the second thing I want you to pray. I want you to tell God, I want you to thank him for what he has done. God, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for the blessings that you've given into my life. Don't forget that last part. Tell God what you need, thank him for what he's done. Then take the bread, which represents his body and take the juice, which represents his blood and realize that because he went to a cross and came back from that, you can come back from this, you can. So take a few moments. Pray that prayer, take communion. Then I'll close this out in prayer in just a few minutes together.
Father, I know that uh, if we could pull back the veil and see, hear, and experience the amount of emotional pain that is represented in these rooms and online, it would be overwhelming. And yet we know that you do see it and you do hear it and you do feel it and you have compassion that you have been there, that your son was tempted in every way that we were tempted and he has experienced everything that we will experience, all the human emotions. We know that in the garden, he was so anxious. It says that his blood vessels like burst and the blood mixed with sweat. We know how much anguish he was under. And yet he went through with that so that we would not only have eternal life, but that we could experience peace in the now. So God, I pray that over us today, that if there's somebody who feels a lot like Elijah and they just maybe wonder if it'd just be better if they weren't here, they want, they'd just rather sleep all day. God, I pray that they would experience your touch. They would recognize there is hope and that you desire to draw near in the midst of their pain. And so Father, we wanna give that to you today. There's a lot to be worried about. We live in a really messy, broken world, but God, we don't wanna stay on those things. We wanna redirect them to you who is sovereign and in control of this out of control world. And you've already won the victory. So we, we claim that and we place that upon you. But I pray today, you would give us a little help give us a little hope. You give us encouragement to face the day, to face the week ahead, to know that as long as we are drawing air into our lungs, that we still have a hope and a purpose. And so we, we tell you what we need and we thank you for what you've done. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen.